following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Good morning. Uh, our second reading for today is from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 5 through 13. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of, the God, of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." We have been going through the book of John for the last several weeks, and actually much, much longer than the last several weeks. We started with John chapter 1 in 2012. So it's been 10 years, actually, that we've been trying to make our way through the book of John, and we kept, you know, we would only do a little bit at a time, and we move on to other things. And the last time we moved on to other things was five years ago. So we're resuming and finishing the book of John uh, this month and next. So by the end of June, we'll have finished up the entire book of John. And um, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you may remember that uh, I saw in chapter 18 two kind of narrative threads that have some similarities in them. The first one is a personal thread with Jesus, where his very close friends, Judas and Peter, betrayed him to the Roman authorities and then pretended they didn't even know him, Judas and Peter, respectively. And these were very personal um, sins that Jesus ended up bearing in his body on the cross because it was that betrayal and that denial that sent him all the way to this moment of crucifixion in part. And then the other narrative thread that goes through John chapter 18 and, and the, the story bounces back and forth as you read through the chapter uh, is the uh, more systemic, big picture uh, organizations of power sins that Jesus bore in his body on the cross. And that would be religion and empire. So the religious establishment and the Roman Empire put Jesus on that cross in their own ways as well. And it's those sins that Jesus bore in his body, as it says in one of the epistles later in the New Testament. And I've been trying to tell those stories and give you those narrative threads and talk about Jesus bearing sins in his body in that way, because when I started to think about what it means for Jesus to bear our sins in that way, a whole new understanding of Christianity opened up to me, which is to say this. If, you've, if you're a person who's only ever understood Jesus bearing your sins in his body on the cross to mean the specific sins that each one of you committed and that I have committed are, are what put Jesus on that cross, and he forgives us in that moment, it's not that that's untrue, it's just that that's very, very narrow and very individualized. And so when I started to think about it this other way, like, oh, Jesus had close friends betray him, let him down, pretend they didn't even know him, and he went to his death in part as a result of that betrayal. That's the sin of humanity that many of us, probably all of us, have experienced at one time or another. 
We've all experienced the betrayal of a friend, and Jesus took that sin into his body, and he forgave it. And the sad truth is, almost all of us have committed that sin to another friend as well. And Jesus took that into his body and bore it. And then the much, perhaps much more challenging side of that story is that human beings put themselves together. And whether, whether or not it seems like it's a good reason at the time or a good idea at the time to gather around systematized religion or uh, the structures of government, inevitably those things get corrupted by our human nature. And it's those corrupt institutions that continue to bring sin to bear into the world to this day. And it was that those corrupt institutions of, of religion and empire, particularly the two of them colluding together with each other, those are also the sins that put Jesus on the cross and in, in his body that he bore, and which in his body he bore on the cross. So last week's sermon might have been particularly challenging for some of you. It was called Church and State. And my argument essentially was that we're still doing this today. It's not a, no longer a Jewish religious establishment in a Roman empire, but in collusion with each other. But now it's a, in many ways, where we live is a Christian religious establishment in collusion with an American government that has continued to commit these and perpetuate these systematized sins, right? So... What happens in John 19, which is the chapter we'll look at today, is really a continuation of that second narrative thread, that church and state stuff, if you like. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that one of the things I said at the very end, probably as I was running out of gas, was I would love if we could spend some time dialoguing about this a little more because I don't know if this is a totally new idea for some people, if it's a really challenging or maybe even somewhat offensive idea for some people. And we just kind of had to leave it where it was. But the good news is that today, because that narrative is continued, we're going to see more evidence of it in the gospel text, which I'll read to you shortly. And also we're going to have some time to interact a little bit about it, right? And so what I'm going to do after I read the part of John 19 that pertains to this is ask you some questions and get some answers from you as well, responses. I don't, I don't expect you to have answers per se, but I want to hear how you're responding to this topic and this idea and what you're seeing in the text. And we'll maybe have a little bit of a dialogue about that. Um, and I'll do my best to repeat what is said so that people in the room can hear it and that people in Zoom can hear it. Um, typically in these situations, I will pass a microphone around I'm probably not going to do that today for reasons that I'm not going to go into, but I will try to repeat everything so that we don't have anybody missing out on what's being said. So let me give you those questions ahead of time, actually, because sometimes for me, if I know somebody's going to ask me questions about the Bible, it's helpful for me to have those questions before me as I'm reading the text. So the first one is about connections. I love to teach people how to read the Bible, not just what the Bible should be saying to you. And one of the mo most fruitful things you can do when you're studying the Bible is look for connections between different parts of the Bible, right? And so in this case, I'm going to ask you first to think about the connections between the story today and the story from last week, which I know not all of you are here, but I've kind of tried to tell you a little bit about it already. Um, and this specifically that church and state concept. Then I'm going to ask you to see if there are any connections between what happens in John chapter 19 and other things that Jesus has said, either in the Gospel of John or in other parts of the Bible, if you know the rest of the Bible at all. Um, and maybe even some things that other authors of the Bible have said that, that connect to this idea as well. In fact, you may have seen hints of it, and if you did, it was, it was on purpose, in the texts that have already been read in the service today. 
Then I'm going to ask you to find some examples, call out some examples of political language in this passage and religious language in this passage. It should be pretty easy to see both of them. And I'm especially interested in the times when you see both of them in the same sentence, which I think there's going to be a couple examples of. And then the other question is this. Here again, it's a nice tool that you can put into your Bible study tool chest, if you will. If you had to sort of summarize all of the meaning of this story into one of the verses in the story or one phrase in the story, what would it be? Now, you, won't, you might not get it perfectly to cover everything, but what's the most poignant phrase in the story is the question I'm going to ask you. All right? And then there is a bonus question, which if we have time, I will get to. Uh, but for now, with those questions in mind, let me read to you um, the first, I think it's about 20 verses of John 19. And uh, if you are a visual person, you are going to want to have the Bible in front of you. It will be on the screen. But if you have the red Bibles in the room, it would be on page 881. And it starts out with Pilate, who will you, you will probably remember is the civic authority who is part of putting Jesus on the cross in last week's story. All right, John 19.1. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. And the soldiers wove a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they dressed him in a purple robe. They kept coming up to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and striking him on the face. Pilate went out again and said to them, uh, and them here is probably the Jewish people who are gathered, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no case against him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Here is the man. When the chief priests and the police saw him, they shouted, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him. I find no case against him. The Jews answered him, and here I do need to pause just for a moment to remind you that when the text says the Jews, we need to acknowledge that for many people, that, even just that phrase, that othering of Jewish people is painful and, and is often used as a phrase in, for example, anti-Semitic manifestos that people publish when they do terrible, violent things, right? So the Jews is used in this text, but we must be very careful that we don't allow it to be appropriated for anti-Semitism. We who are Christians who own this text for our own religious practice and belief need to be responsible for it in that way. Um, and so it says the Jews, it doesn't mean that all Jewish people are terrible. Um, and anybody who interprets this text in that way is doing violence to this text. Um, and I think it's worth pointing that out once in a while when we encounter that phrase. So uh, Pilate says, take him yourselves and crucify him. I have no case against him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law. And according to that law, he ought to die because he has claimed to be the son of God. Now when Pilate heard this, he was more afraid than ever. He entered his headquarters again and asked Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate therefore said to him, Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no power over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are no friend of the emperor. Everyone who claims to be a king sets himself against the emperor. When Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside and sat on the judge's bench at a place called the Stone Pavement, or in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about noon. He said to the Jews, Here is your king. 
They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate asked them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but the emperor. Then he handed him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and carrying the cross by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull, which is in Hebrew called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side with Jesus between them. Pilate also had an inscription written and put on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. Then the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And we'll stop there at the end of verse 22. So, what connections do you see between these events in John chapter 19 and the church and state concept from last week? Right? And you can go ahead and just shout out an answer, and I, I will repeat it as best I can. Yeah, the church is clearly using the empire to do its bidding. Can you explain why you say that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so they say we have a law, not the Romans have a law, but we Jewish people have a law. Um, and, uh, you know, we also have a law that says don't kill, but, um, you know, this one is the one we want you to focus on at this particular moment, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah, so when religion and the state unite, terrible, terrible things happen, and the themes of religion are distorted. Is that what you said? Yeah. Thank you, Diana. Interestingly, they're completely not united here. They're playing a game of hot potato, and the potato is fear. Yeah. They're the one that's responsible for what's happening. Yeah. Can't see together, great evil happens. Ah, how fascinating. Dan says that they, they're playing a game of hot potato, and the potato is fear. And neither, neither group wants to be responsible for what's about to happen. And it's only when the two of them are put together that this terrible thing occurs. That's a great observation. Thank you. You can keep telling me about the connections between last week's church and state, but I'm going to move on. And, and as I move on through these questions, you can always go back to one that's earlier if you have a, a thought that you want to share about it. So what connections do you see to what happens in this part of the story, to other things that Jesus has said, or to other parts of the Bible? Now here... You may not know lots of other parts of the Bible. That's okay. You can just listen. But here's the thing. If you're not sure, if you think it might be there, be brave and say that. You might be right. You might be wrong. This is a place where you can be right or wrong about that kind of thing, and nobody will think less of you. And in fact, I almost always find that the people who know the Bible less have really amazing insights into the Bible, often way better than the professional Christians like me and uh, some of you who know the Bible, right? That was a long preamble to a simple question. What connections do you see? <laughs> other things Jesus has said or other parts of the Bible that, you're not, that you know about? Well, amateur Christian here. But, uh, <laughs> the, uh, the whole uh, rendered to Caesar was Caesar's being God was God's. Like, this whole like, system of punishment, whether it be religious or state, um, is kind of like that 
give them their nonsense and they're like, here's God giving mm. himself over to that while what the work he's truly doing through Jesus' sacrifice is the gift of God was God's heart to me. Anyway. Yeah, okay, so you're drawing a connection to the part. One of the things I alluded to last week was that teaching of Jesus where somebody gives him the coin and says, do we have to pay taxes to Rome? And he says, render under Caesar, unto Caesar what is Caesar, to God what is God's. And you're seeing a, a parallel to this uh, passage, um, meaning that, like, uh, say the last part again. Well, just that, like, you know, that Jesus is giving himself up to them. We all know we could have felt that value, right? Right. Because yeah. they're So, yeah. the, the, um, the Jesus is giving himself over this, that's almost to me is like, kind of like giving Caesar. Oh, okay. Like his, his body, his sacrifice, his punishment that he's doing. Yeah, so, so Jesus is. The thing that God's doing is what he's, you know, the, the subtext of all this, right? Yeah. So, Jesus is giving himself over to Caesar in a way here, and he doesn't have to do that. He has all the power in the universe to call down if he wants to. Um, yeah, wow. Um, and God is sort of being just hands off enough to let this happen, even though it's not what God wants for the world um, in the small picture, because it's going to accomplish something in the big picture. Is that fair to what you said? Yeah, thank you. All right, let's go Dallas, and then we'll come back again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. What a great observation. So she's calling out uh, this story from the Hebrew Bible. It happens to be in 1 Samuel 8, where the, the Jewish people, who the Israelites, who'd always been governed by judges, see that the, all of their neighbors have kings, and they say to their, their judge, their leader, Samuel, we want a king like our neighbors. Make us like our neighbors and anoint a king. And Samuel's like, I promise you do not want a king. <laughs> and they insist. And so he goes to God, and God says, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And the, the implication is the people should not have a king because <laughs> there is no king but God. And uh, then the story is of the people having a king, multiple kings, splitting the kingdom up, having a very bad experience with kings. Yeah. Um, so that's a great connection to what's happening here with, with having um, a Roman Empire uh, that's ruling them and, and another example of it not going well. I think I saw one hand here, and then we'll come here and then go on to the next question. Yeah, thank you. So the idea that God is bigger than any government, and especially any particular implementation of government or political view, Jesus is giving himself over to this, but uh, God is bigger than all of that. Fair? Yeah. Right. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's a fascinating idea that, uh, that Jesus, when Jesus says to Pilate, you only have power because God has allowed you to have a little bit of power in this situation. 
and, and this terrible thing is happening because God is kind of releasing some of the, um, the power uh, to human forces, right, or to other evil forces. You mentioned the book of Job, um, which is a fascinating book that uh, maybe someday we'll go all the way through Job. It would probably take us 20 years, and I don't think I have that long. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I would also call out maybe like some of the stuff that you see in the epistles. Romans 13 is commonly cited about how we ought to obey the government and so forth. And the idea being that, that God allows governments to have authority for a time and in a way, right? And so we submit to those authorities, and in so doing, we submit to God sometimes. But other times, you know, the person who wrote that was such a rebel against the government that he was executed by the government. So we have to, we have to figure out what it means. But yes, that idea that God is seeding, C-E-D-E, seed, not plant, but like releasing some power into the human systems. Yeah. So we're talking a little bit already about politics, but what are some specific examples of political language in this passage that you see? Or you could go on and say specific examples of religious language, or the, the really poignant ones, I think, are when you see both. But just you shout something out. You don't even have to tell me what verse it is. So just yell out the phrase if you see it. Uh-huh. That's a great observation about the political reality that Pilate finds himself in, which is he doesn't seem all that interested in crucifying Jesus, but a big part of his constituency really wants this to happen, and he has to be um, aware of that and be willing to uh, allow them to have their way if he wants to keep his own head on his shoulders, perhaps. Yeah, thank you. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, you're, you are reminded of the coin teaching as well, but the, I noticed, or you noticed, and I love it, that how their language kind of gets progressively more political, at least directly political. It starts out saying, we have a law, and then it says, you know, you have to, we have no king but the emperor, right? Um, and anybody who lets this guy go is no friend to the emperor, and, and you can tell they're really putting pilots, um, safety uh, and life uh, on the line by warning him that if he doesn't do what they're asking him to do, he is also going to be viewed as uh, endorsing political dissidents. Yeah, right. So that you're, you're pointing out specifically that transition from um, from their own religious law about Jesus can't say he's a king to like, oh, by the way, we have no king but the emperor. That's a pretty big leap in you know three statements. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah. Yes, fulfilling the scriptures is very, very big religious language, yes. Hmm. Yeah, this, <laughs> it's a pretty gentle way of describing it. <laughs> a weird overlap between the past and the present. <laughs> it is weird, all right, yeah. No, but you're right. That language of fulfilling the scriptures and even of like being obedient to the Bible and so forth definitely in our modern times is seeping into um, uh, legal language in a lot of places and in a lot of ways. And... Uh, even into a, a religious version of legalism that doesn't even necessarily connect with government, I think part of what you said is like the, the Bible says it is sort of a conversation killer because what that, what that means is whatever I want it to mean. And if you argue with me, you're not arguing with me, you're arguing with God because God wrote the Bible. And when do we get to do the part where we actually look at the scriptures together and say, what do we think this might mean? <laughs> well, I already did that part, um, or you already did that part, and we can cast each other out to our heart's content as a result, yeah. Yeah. Well, I wish you'd had the microphone for that one, Dan. I'm going to have trouble. <laughs> There's always one. <laughs> It ended with, God said, hold my beer. I <laughs> but yeah, you're alluding to Daniel and maybe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, which is their slave names, and Pastor Simmons always gives their, uh, their ethnic names, which I regret that I do not remember. But yeah, it's definitely other empires wanting to put other people to death and, and God intervening and saying, well, you can throw them in the fire if you want, but they're going to come out and their ropes are going to be burned off and they're otherwise going to be fine. Yeah, or I'm going to put them in the lion's den in the case of Daniel. And yeah, yeah. Good connection. Thank you. So what do you think is the, um, and please continue to answer the other questions, but what is a really poignant phrase? What might be the most important phrase in the passage as you read it? Um, another way to think about this is if you were trying to distill the whole kind of point of this story into one of the phrases that's contained in the story, which would you choose? Say it again. You have no power over me. This is something that Jesus says to Pilate. That, that one? Yeah, thanks. Staying with the, the idea of betrayal, um, God chose his people, and they're saying, we have no king but Caesar. Mm. Yeah, we have no king but Caesar, or but the emperor, as the NRSV says. Yeah, even, even after God has, has been their king. Um, yes, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So he says, you have no power over me unless it has been given you from above. And the Philippians passage, which uh, I believe you read a few moments ago, uh, said that, that Jesus, though he was in very nature God, did not consider his, his godliness something to be exploited. He chose to surrender it. And so when, 
when Jesus says to Pilate, you are, you're, the only power you have is it comes from, from above, he's actually perhaps referring to his own uh, voluntary relinquishing of divine power in that moment. Um, yeah, which is, when you, this is the thing, when you read John 18 and 19 and see what's happening with this political and religious collusion, it's, it's almost impossible to go back and read something like Philippians 2 and not see it as a, an extremely political statement. Yeah. Please do. asking the question that one of my college professors, Dr. Elvira Berry, always asked. And sometimes she was kind enough to write it in the margins of my papers. <laughs> so what? <laughs> right? I mean, that's the question. What do we do with this really stimulating and perhaps uh, intellectual conversation when we're out in the world? You've actually just asked the bonus question, which I'm not quite to yet, but um, please Please um, remind me if I don't quite get to it. We have time for another couple of responses or questions or anything. Let's. Um, my best guess of what I've based on like the so what conversation is that there's a lot of people that are involved Yeah. Oh, interesting. So one of the things you're, you're saying you take away from this is to be very, very wary of getting involved in a culture war. And I think might, what might be behind, tell me if I'm wrong, what you're saying is that so often we find ourselves involved in culture wars because we think that they're religious wars. And we think that as good religious or faithful Christian people, we have to be involved in this particular battle. Hmm, yeah, that's right. Okay, so that's what you meant by the aims of one being used to justify the other. Thank you. How interesting you're saying that Pilate gets blamed for this decision, yes. Did you want to say more about that? Well, just that it, 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 he's like forced to make this decision by, by the religious powers. Yeah. Uh-huh. He's kind of, yeah, he's kind of forced to this decision by the religious powers. Um, maybe kind of by this, this swirling around each other until we're too far into it to stop thing, perhaps. But yes, the religious... Uh, levers were being used to lean on Pilate, and and here he finds himself in the in the Apostles' Creed. Right, he was suffered under Pontius Pilate. It says the only historical figure mentioned in the creed, other than Jesus himself. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting how, um, and you see this in the movements of the text itself. Even just today, they want. Um, they lean on Pilate, they want to use the levers of government to accomplish their own aims, and then when they get used, they want to kind of like back away from it. You see that when they say like, can you change the sign that you wrote on there? We don't actually want him to be identified as the king of the Jews now that we've identified him as such so that you could crucify him. If you could just change it to say he said that he was, that would be great. 
And Pilate's like, okay, enough. No, I'm going to leave it the way I wrote it. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yes, we don't want to say in the creeds that Jesus suffered under religious leaders. We want it to be just this outside secular authority that did it, but we did it too. That's what I think it means when it says our sins put Jesus on the cross. It's not like, I I use this analogy all the time, it's not like I stole a grape from the grocery store when I was six years old and I deserved to be punished in hell forever and Jesus took that sin on the cross, right? That's That's a... that's a caricature, but it's actually not that much of a caricature of what some of us might have felt was the truth of Christianity when we were younger, especially. No, it's that we can't help but do this stuff when we get together as people. Like, we, we, we try to consolidate power. We collude with stuff that's already evil and that we have identified as oppressive in other ways, but just long enough to get what we want. And, man, yeah. It's ugly. It's ugly stuff. So the bonus question, which I did not put on the screen because I knew that you would all just leave, is what do you think is the right way for Christians to be involved with politics and government? That, to me, is the specific version of the question that Dell asked a moment ago, which is, what do I do with this when I leave here? What does this stimulating conversation point me toward? Right? And it could be a lot of different things, but one of the ones that I think is really, really difficult to answer and which we ought to give great thought to is, as people of Christian faith, how involved with government ought we to be? And you see extremes on this question even within the various denominations of Christianity. You have some um, Christian denominations that want nothing to do with government. No military service, not even any uh, voting. And you have others who want everything to do with government. In fact, they want to be part of consolidating the powers of government. They want to control government's powers so that they can make America a theocracy, right? And there's all kinds of stuff in between. And I think what's very, very tempting, especially when you are able to back up a little bit or maybe get like a drone footage of what's happening in the world, so you have the big picture and you start to see what happens when religion gets in bed with the state, it's very tempting for some of us, this is my, my particular failing, I'm sure, to want to say, well, I'm not going to get involved with any of that. But I need to acknowledge that that's very easy for me to say as someone whose body is not put on the line, right? As, particularly as a straight, white, cisgender male, it's very easy for me to say, well, I'm not going to get involved with all of that stuff. Because I can live my life pretty much the way I want to and nobody will ever mess with me. That's not true for others. And so, you know, part of my job as a, as a believer in Jesus, as an embracer of this way, to put my body on the line and my, my own um, benefit on the line in order to make... God's justice more present in the world. And sometimes that does mean engaging with government and politics and civics and so forth. I can't say that I've got it all figured out at all. It's not exactly a rhetorical question, but it's not one I'm going to try to answer right right now. I do insist that you think about it, though. (laughs) That's my exhortation for you today. It's not an option to stand on the sidelines. 
I also don't think it's appropriate to, to try to make America into a theocracy. I think most of you probably agree with me on both of those statements, but we need to do the work together to figure out um, where for each of us is the right place to engage and way to engage. Um, thank you for a really, really good discussion. You've taught me so much in your own um, readings of this passage and connections that I hadn't made before. Um, let me pray for us, then we'll take communion together and sing another song or two. God, thank you for this story from Scripture, which shows us in some ways a mirror that we would not want to be shown uh, about what happens when we try to get what we want religiously out of government and about what, what happens when we try to grab as much power as we can in our world. Let the same mind be in us that was in Christ Jesus because when he surrendered his power and went willingly to his death, the door was opened for you to have the ultimate conquest, the ultimate expressions of the power of grace and love. Help us to do that same thing in our own worlds, in our own ways, being willing to surrender our own power for the sake of others. Give us wisdom and discernment, especially in community with each other, to know when and how and how much to engage with politics and when it's time to do our work in other ways. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.